right, good morning. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Matthew chapter 13, where we will be. And uh, we have been walking through, I don't know if this is week eight or nine, we've been walking through uh, many of the parables about the kingdom, and uh, we're going to pick up in Matthew 13. Uh, we've been kind of jumping around, uh, but I'll remind us in just a minute. But um, before I do that, and as you turn to Matthew 13, um, I do want to just uh, mention uh, about our trip this past week. Uh, thanks for praying for us. Thanks for thinking about us. Um, if you were here last week, Ryan Abone was here, and man, um, you were in for a treat. Uh, the podcast should be up, and you can go check that out. But I'm just grateful for men um, who can rightly divide the word, and uh, grateful for Ryan and who he is, and a friend, and uh, glad that our body got to benefit from uh, him being here and teaching uh, you and all of us. A great time in Guatemala. Uh, we took nine folks there this past week, and uh, man, we had a blast. And uh, we got back. I think we landed around 10 last night, and the airplane just kind of stayed out, uh, just wouldn't taxi or anything, and just waited, and came on the thing and said, uh, yeah, they're, we're looking at the gate, and no one's there, so we're making a call and trying to see if Memphis can round up some folks to, uh, to bring us in, and we were like, cool, uh, great, so 30 minutes later, we made it in, and uh, we got home, and I had studied all week, um, but so did that last night, and uh, I'm not saying that to elevate me or anything like that. I'm just saying I'm tired. That's what I'm saying. But um, we had a great time. We had a great crew, and uh, it was just so encouraging to see the same gospel that we preach and the same gospel that, that permeates into our hearts and conforms us to the image of Christ is the same gospel that's spreading all throughout the world. And, uh, you know, there's lots of thoughts over the week, but it just makes you feel so small in a good way, like in a, in a good gospel perspective way. Um, it's so easy to get caught up in the think that this is it. And man, the, God is doing things all throughout the world. And there are believers who love Jesus and the gospel is transforming their lives. And they don't have these things. And it's just so sweet um, to see other brothers and sisters in Christ speaking Spanish and uh, doing their thing and seeing what the gospel is doing in Guatemala and in other places. Um, it's just phenomenal. And there's some great folks down there who love Jesus. And uh, we were blessed just to, to let they allowed us into their home for a week. We were with the children's home for a week and just got to love on those children and all of those things. They gave uh, a couple hours ago, um, about 9.30 our time. Uh, they're technically on Memphis time, but they don't do daylight savings. They just keep it the same time all year, which I respect. Um, so when we fall back in November, we'll be on the same time as them. Um, but they gathered this morning for worship, you know, thinking about them a lot. And it was so encouraging to, to just know that they're praising the Lord and preaching the word, and the gospel is doing what it does. So um, hope that blesses you in some way, but let's uh, pray, and uh, we'll jump into the morning. We're going to look at two parables. Um, don't let that scare you. They're like one verse apiece, and two verses is the other one, so uh, we're still going to keep our time and all those kind of things. So uh, let's pray and invite the Lord to be with us. Father, God, we ask that you would teach us, that um, I can't add anything um, to enhance your word or the power of your word. God, that that's not what teaching is. I'm not trying to add to it. I don't need to enhance it. Um, God, it is totally sufficient to save. It is totally sufficient to save uh, your sons and daughters. Um, God, that uh, we just want to be as faithful as we can and mine it and just, and to just dig into it. Um, God, to rightfully see it for how you've revealed it to us. Um, so God, help us to treasure your word. Um, that's what these parables are about, um, to see your word uh, permeate all throughout the world. 
Um, so God, um, be with us. Um, I pray that all of us, we would not stand over your word, but God, that we would submit our lives under it. Um, and God, you would rule us um, by your spirit. And by so illumine the truth to us now, conform us to the image of your son. And I, God, I pray um, that if there's any in here that don't know you as their Lord and their Savior, that haven't put their faith in what you've done in their place, um, God, that your word would permeate into their hearts this morning. Um, amen. All right, so Matthew 13, uh, we're supposed to read it, so let's go ahead and read it. If you'll stand for the reading of God's word, we usually read it and then pray, but we'll just reverse it today. Um, I'm going to start in verse 31, and uh, we'll read um, it. says this, Matthew 13, starting in verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. Uh, it is the smallest of all seeds, but when it larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And he told them another parable. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these crowds and parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Thanks so much um, in reverence to God's word. So to give you some context of where we are um, in these parables in Matthew chapter 13, um, if you remember uh, week one of this series when we introduced the parables, we started in Matthew 13. Um, early on in Matthew 13, reason why he's teaching in parables. And uh, to give some context to even that, in Matthew chapter 12, um, Jesus has multiple run-ins with the scribes and the Pharisees. And we mentioned these, but um, Jesus starts healing people on the Sabbath, you know, heaven forbid, someone their life back and breaks these scribes and the Pharisees' earthly traditions that they've added to um, the Old Testament law. They added their own man-made traditions, and they would often enforce those on Jews. Uh, Rome had authority in the world, uh, which we'll talk about today, but they gave and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, um, the ability to kind of govern uh, with civil matters and spiritual matters, uh, the Israelites. So the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, they would um, add these extra customs um, to kind of burden the uh, scribes or the, the Israelites, um, all the power in that day, which is why uh, when it was time for Jesus to die, um, the scribes and the Pharisees had to go get approval from a Roman governor. They had to go to Pilate to, to approve of the execution um, because uh, the scribes and the Pharisees were given authority to put, you know, and add um, human tradition and things to the law, but they couldn't perform any serious actions as far as taking someone's life or anything like that. Um, but Jesus starts to break their customs, and he would intentionally do it. He would pick figs on the kill people on the Sabbath. He would eat you know, things he wasn't supposed to eat on the Sabbath. And he wasn't breaking, I want to be clear, he wasn't breaking God's Old Testament law. Um, Jesus obeyed that perfectly in our place. Not once did he fail to obey the Old Testament and the law. He didn't come to fulfill it. And he fulfilled it perfectly. But as he's fulfilling it, he would intentionally go out of his way to break these customs from the scribes and the Pharisees, and they couldn't stand him for it. And he would show up, and they, would, they had these interactions in Matthew chapter 12 to the point where midway through chapter that the scribes and the Pharisees, they go out and conspire um, as to how they might destroy him, which is the word that Matthew uses, that they're done with him. Like, he, he needs to be gone. We're gonna destroy him. And then they call him lots of words, and Jesus responds, and 
Jesus was performing these miracles by the power of the devil, and we talked about that weeks ago, and uh, Jesus lets them have it. And then we move into Matthew chapter 13, and Jesus starts speaking in parables. And essentially, Israel has rejected their king. Jesus had spent, uh, he's probably two-thirds through his ministry at this point, but he had spent at least two years doing ministry. And now you've got these scribes and Pharisees. Israel has essentially rejected the king. And Jesus starts teaching in these parables. And if you remember, a parable story with a hidden meaning kind of thrown alongside. Uh, the Greek word, uh, the prefix para just means alongside and balo means to throw. And you put those together, you get parable. And it's, it's an earthly story with a truth that's kind of thrown along the side. And, and Jesus explains this, they're all about the kingdom. So these aren't, you know, agricultural principles. These aren't good business principles. These aren't leadership principles. This is Jesus using earthly terms and earthly instruments and characters um, to tell a story that has to do with Jesus's kingdom, with God establishing his kingdom on the earth. And what is that? It is Jesus Christ establishing his rule and his reign, just like a king would physically. It's Jesus Christ establishing his rule and his reign on the earth. And to be clear, Jesus establish his rule and his reign physically. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But now he is establishing his rule and his reign spiritually. And this is what threw many of the Jews um, off. They, they, they didn't expect the Messiah. They were expecting a, another Julius Caesar, another um, Alexander the Great. They were expecting this Messiah to show up and, and come with physical dominance and power and overthrow Rome. And that's not how our Messiah came. He didn't show up and exercise his dad and all authority, which he had. He didn't establish his kingdom that way. He established it through love and self-sacrifice and humility and servitude towards the people that he was trying to save. He was a conquering king, but he was a conquering servant. And the way he became a conquering king was through his suffering. And they were not expecting that. But Jesus is giving us, each of these parables gives us another kind of color, another aspect, another glimpse of how he is establishing more of, his, more of his reign in people's hearts all throughout the earth. Does that make sense? So that's what we're looking for as we look in the parables. We're not looking for good business principles or good wisdom principles like the Proverbs. We're looking for, okay, what does this tell me about Jesus establishing more of his rule and reign and then we gotta turn the mirror around and say, okay, what does this parable um, show or reveal about how he's establishing more of his rule and more of his reign in my own heart. And that's where we want to end today. Does that make sense? So that's what's going on. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 13 earlier, um, he says, to those who have, more will be given. And to those who um, don't have, even what they have will be taken away. And what he's talking about there is those that are broken, very much like Matthew 5, where the Sermon on the Mount opens, those who are poor in spirit, those who are know that they can't save themselves, those who know that they need a savior and those who see that Jesus Christ is that savior, that they don't live by bread alone, but they hang, they live on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Those that see Jesus as their savior and draw in when he speaks intentionally kind of confusing stories and statements, those who draw in, more truth will be given. That the parables were almost this, this presentation that would call the genuine believers to lean in. Those who truly hunger for God's word will lean in closer, and those who don't, they'll walk away. We see this in John 6, where Jesus starts, he doesn't give parables, but he starts saying, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, and he's talking symbolically and spiritually about how we would um, partake of and consume of Jesus' broken body and his bloodshed, um, ultimately kind of leading 
and those things. Um, and people start walking away, like, who is this guy? This is confusing. And they start walking away. Why? Because they didn't see Jesus for who he really was. But he says, when I teach these parables, when I give these sayings, those who hang on my words will lean in and more will be given to them. But those who don't, the self-righteous, those who think that they're, they're good because they keep up the, you know, the tidiness of their religion and they say all the right things and do all the right things and raise their hand when they're supposed to raise their hand and drop the plate, uh, money in the plate, those things, so that God might approve of their good works. Those who are trying to, to earn God's love by their works, they don't see Jesus for who he is. Even what they have will be taken away. It was meant to conceal the truth from truth to others who would have a heart to hear it and believe it and draw in closer. Does that make sense? And that's our prayer during this series is that all of us would just draw in closer to these parables and uh, see how they might um, work and permeate into our own hearts. Um, so, next. And in Matthew chapter 13, um, ironically, we see three different parables about seed. Uh, we see the first one, the parable of the sower, and we talked about that a couple weeks ago, um, where the gospel seed is proclaimed, and we see that some people, um, as the gospel falls on people's hearts that it gets choked out by the cares and the love of the world. We see other seed fall on people's hearts and it gets um, burned out or scorched by the sun, which is the persecution uh, from the world. Um, you know, give it time. Just preach the gospel and walk time. This, this world is the gauntlet. Um, that, that, you know, if you wanna know what's genuine, how do you know if gold or, or an element is genuine? What do you do? You just heat it up. And the heat will reveal the genuine and it will expose the false. Some of the gospel seed will fall on the genuine soil, the good soil, and it will produce fruit. And it's not our job to discern the soils. We talked about all that. It's just our job to proclaim the gospel and pray continually, produce fruit in keeping with repentance that God would give to receive his word. But the first one is the proclamation of the gospel. That's the parable of the sower. We haven't looked at the second one yet. It's the parable of the wheat um, and the tares, um, but it's the imitation of the kingdom where um, we introduced this concept a couple weeks ago, church and the invisible church, um, that's essentially the parable of the wheat and the tares, that the visible church are people that you can visibly see in this room. Um, this is who's in the visible church right here. You look around, we can visibly see the church. The invisible church, you can't see. It's the people in this room that you can see, but it's those that are genuinely born again. And we look around and we see the visible church, but um, I don't know your heart. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm not God. But within the visible church, there's the invisible church. Does that make sense? And that's the parable of tares, is that um, there's wheat and there's tares, and the farmer is going to wait until the wheat has grown. And then one day, um, within the visible church, there's lots of people, but one day the wheat will be separated from the tares. Does that make sense? So that's the imitation of the kingdom. If the parable of the kingdom. The parable of the wheat and the tares is the imitation of the kingdom. And now in this parable, we're going to see the expansion of the kingdom. And they all have to do with seeds being sown and scattered and planted and all of those things. So does that make sense? And what we're going to see today is that Christianity is not just a list of rules. It's not just a set of facts. It's not just a moral code, um, but that it is it is something so much greater. It is something, it's this movement that begins dying and put into the ground. And from that, this greater thing begins to expand and permeate all throughout the world. So let's look at it together. Um, and I want to caution us too. Um, there's another time where the mustard seed is mentioned. It's in Matthew chapter 
where Jesus says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, um, usually when I hear mustard seed, that's what I think of, so I'm having to kind of push that away. Um, just, I just wanna make you aware that there's two times that it's mentioned, um, and this is not the, the faith like a mustard seed, and we'll see what it, what it means here. Um, it says, he put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. And this would immediately have gotten his listeners' attention. Because no man would have just sowed one seed. Did you notice that in the, in the sentence? It's like a mustard seed who a man sowed and put it into the... So all of the first century Israelite hearers, um, Jews and Gentile that were around, the crowds would have been like, what? And they would press in a little bit. Because no man would just sow one seed. So the question is, okay, what is this mustard seed? What does this have to do with the kingdom of God and his rule and his reign in our hearts? Look at verse 32. It says, it's the smallest of all seeds. <clears throat> it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, I wanna be clear. Um, feel free to, if you want to go and search and Google the smallest seed and all of those kind of things. Um, I just wanna be clear. Um, that's not the point of the text. Um, According to Jesus in the first century, this was widely known as the smallest seed. There might scientifically be a smaller seed in our world today, but that's not the point that Jesus For all intents and purposes, in the first century in Israel, a mustard seed was the, the smallest of all seeds. And he says, this, the smallest of all seeds ends up growing into the largest of, and look at the phrase, he says, garden plants. Um, when I used to hear the it's probably just because I wasn't paying attention, um, but I used to think that it would grow into this, you know, giant oak tree. Like one of our kind of American sayings is that the acorn, you know, falls to the ground and the oak tree comes from it. Um, it doesn't turn into an oak tree um, because a mustard like a bush. It's not even really a tree. That it's it, it's it's pretty small. But what he's saying here is that this mustard seed, the small, the tiniest of all seeds, can can grow into this giant bush that would be, on some mustard plants would grow where it would essentially look and act like a tree. That it would transform, not real, technically, you know, according to genius and species and all those kind of biological things, but it would all, for all intents and purposes, function as a tree where birds could come and put nests in it and all of those kind of things here is that this tiniest of seeds, this tiniest uh, little thing that's put into the ground would produce this plant that is larger than all the other garden plants that would function in so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So the question is, once again, what does this have to do with the kingdom? Well, in all intents and purposes, if you think about um, first century Israel um, and you think about the world stage, uh, when we read our Bibles, um, it seems like a pretty large, kind of big deal. And when I say big deal, I'm not talking about significance. I'm talking about size. Uh, because our Bibles obviously zoom in on first century Israel. Um, this movement was tiny. It was small. Israel was a tiny country. Rome ruled the world. Before them was Greece. Before them was Persia. Before them was Babylon. Before them, like, the, the known any little movement was small in perspective. And when I say small, like I said, I'm not talking about significance. I'm just talking about size. That it was like this tiny little seed that you've got this humble carpenter born in Bethlehem, lived in Nazareth, 
humbly, that he would live his life humble and meek and gentle and lowly and would serve others. And then he would eventually, uh, he would perform miracles and all those things, but he would eventually, you know, be, would be and tried and tortured and beaten and mocked. And he would be crucified like many other people before him. Crucifixion was a common practice in that day. And he would spend his life in what the book of Acts um, describes as these 12 disciples who were uneducated, common, ordinary men. And he would invest his life in teaching those and in discipling those 12 men. <clears throat> and then he, and he would rise from the dead and he would commission his disciples. He would ascend to heaven and the spirit of God would descend, and descend down to <clears throat> his followers, to his disciples. And from that moment on, as this tiny seed that's buried into the ground would grow and grow and grow and grow. And we see the spirit of God fall and it's God who's building his church, not man. He's the one who's doing it. We might be um, instruments that he's the one who does it. And the spirit of God descends and you see um, instantly the boldness of his um, disciples, Peter being one of them, start preaching the gospel. And in Acts 1, you've got about 120 followers. Um, Acts 2, Peter preached, or added to their number. So you got about 3,120. And then it says the Lord added more to their number every day. In Acts chapter 9, you see the apostle Paul um, get saved. And Paul starts going on these missionary journeys. And he takes the gospel first journey to the Mediterranean, on his second journey to Europe, and on his third journey to Asia, <coughs> excuse me, and he ends up taking it before his death to the capital of the, the known world, to Rome. And by Acts chapter 6, the Thessalonians refer to this movement and to these men um, in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, as those men who have turned the world upside down. By Acts chapter 17, you see this tiny little seed, this tiny little go into the ground and birth into this movement that flipped the world upside down to the point where you and I are experiencing it today. And the same spirit that emboldened these apostles, these disciples, this message and this movement would be the same spirit that would cause um, many martyrs after them to die for this message to the point where now you and I receive it, that the church is built on the blood of Jesus Christ for sure, after him, his apostles and the martyrs is what, what, what now we stand on. We have this word because of, of the Holy Spirit emboldening them to flip the world upside down for the sake of the gospel, which is why we've received it. And this tiny little seed would take root, would, would go into the ground and produce um, this massive tree to where now the world gets to benefit. Even those that aren't saved get to benefit from the love and the grace and the compassion of the church. And all of this in the Old Testament, because um, this idea of the kingdom being like a tree um, wasn't a foreign concept. Um, you can find it in um, Ezekiel, you can find it in Zechariah, you can find it in Isaiah. Um, but I want you to turn, if you will, also be on the screen, but to Daniel chapter four. Uh, there's an incredible story in Daniel chapter four uh, about this kingdom being like a tree. And uh, we can learn so much from it today, especially in light of this parable. In fact, I would argue that uh, 
parallels from this text uh, when he quotes and when he says this parable, and you'll see which verse I'm talking about here. Um, But in Daniel chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar uh, was the king of Babylon, and Babylon was the world power of the day. And Nebuchadnezzar was the king, and he starts having these visions. And he starts asking all of his servants and magicians and everybody else to tell him what the dream is. And then he finds out Daniel um, can interpret dreams and he starts essentially telling Daniel this vision that he's had. So I wanna read it to you. Uh, I'm gonna read in verse 10. He says, the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field uh, found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. So you see similar language here from Matthew chapter 13. You've got this giant tree in the kingdom of Babylon, and the world is <clears throat> getting to see it and notice it, and some are getting to benefit from it. And then he says to this in verse 13, I saw in the visions in my head as I lay in bed and behold, a watcher, a holy one, <clears throat> came down from heaven and claimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump, its, the stump of its roots in the earth. With a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field, let him... Be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end of the living, uh, to the end, don't miss this, in verse 17, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the of men. That the most high, gives the kingdoms to whoever he will and sets over those kingdoms the lowliest, the lowliest, lowliest, that's how you say it, of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw and you, O Belteshazzar, that's, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So notice Nebuchadnezzar doesn't quite understand who Yahweh is. He says the spirit of the holy gods, plural, kind of things, but I've got this dream. There's this giant tree, makes me feel great, right? The world sees it, the world notices it. And then the dreams start to go south. This one from heaven says, cut it down, chop it down. And then this person will become like a a beast and act like a beast and all those kind of things. And Nebuchadnezzar is going, okay, what in the world does this mean? What is it talking about? And the Holy One says that it's the most high God who gives the kingdom to men and who rules over the kingdoms of men. And we know that's true from the New Testament. That every ruler, every um, earthly king, every earthly um, authority is given by God. That he's sovereign over it all. He is sovereign over all things. He decrees all things. He ordains all things. And every single person put in power, every single person put in authority is decreed by the Lord. He's sovereign over it all. Psalm says the Lord is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases that he is sovereign over the affairs of this world. And every single person that's put in authority is put in there because... And we see this person in the dream testify to that. Now watch what happens. Daniel responds in verse 24. He says this. This is the interpretation, O king. It's a decree of the Most High, which is... 
my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So Daniel shows up and says, hey man, this is about you. You're gonna be cast out, you're gonna become like a beast, and you're gonna learn that it's God, that it's Yahweh who gives the kingdoms to men, and he rules over all things. And what does he say? Daniel's natural response in verse 27 Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be of your prosperity. Daniel says, hey, this is gonna happen. But your only response, what you should do is repent and turn from your sin and turn to the Lord. And he might be gracious towards you. But this is gonna happen. Verse 28, upon King Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, and this is Nebuchadnezzar talking, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal and for the glory of my majesty. And it says, while the words were still in the king's mouth. So you've got Nebuchadnezzar saying, look at all I've done. Look at all I've built. Um, the Hebrew for that is you better check yourself before, you, I'm, it's not the Hebrew of that, but you see what he says this, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men in your dwelling field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. He was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were uh, like bird's claws. Sounds miserable. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. So at the end of these seven years, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, my splendor returned to me, my counselors, my and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. So Nebuchadnezzar faces this, the seven periods come and he essentially is given the kingdom back after this time of eating like a beast and acting like a beast and he acknowledges that it is God the affairs of men. It is God who's sovereign over the kingdoms of this earth and look at verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This great tree, God is sovereign over it. And he can cut it down when he wants. And he can build it back up when he wants. And we see Assyria fall in the Old Testament. We see Babylon fall. We see Persia fall. All these, Greece fall. What no one thought would happen, Rome fall. One day, every single earthly nation will fall and one will remain. And it will be the, the great tree, the great kingdom of our Lord Jesus. It will be a greater 
be a greater kingdom. It's the only one that will stand. And it began with this tiny little movement, this tiny little seed into the ground and burst this great kingdom that will withstand all other kingdoms. Why? Because every single earthly kingdom is built on self-exaltation, glorifying yourself, exalting yourself, benefiting yourself. But what is the kingdom of our God built on? It is built on self-sacrifice and grace and mercy. That's what it's built on. And every earth, but our king is alive and he is living and he will never die and his kingdom will reign forever. And this tree will continue to expand. And that's the visible kingdom. Now what Jesus is about to do is he about to, he's about to contrast, not really contrast, he's about to give of the invisible expansion of the kingdom where the the tree, the mustard seed growing into this tree is what we see visibly, we're about to see what happens invisibly as the kingdom permeates throughout the earth. He says this in verse 33. He told them another, I did this in the first service, I gotta do it again. Um, Lots of commentators, lots of theologians, we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, land on different sides of the parables when it comes to interpretation. Um, And with a clear conscience, I do wanna give you the other side in a couple sentences so you know, um, because biblically it holds up. So with a clear conscience, I can say, hey, there's some other really smart people um, who think this parable actually is alluding to something else. Um, and there are some great theologians that I respect um, that interpret this parable to believe um, that the birds that are nesting in the tree is essentially a more visible and invisible church where you've got these birds that represent um, something negative, that represent false teachers and wolves among the sheep um, that are nesting within the church. And biblically, we can that will hold up, that that interpretation can hold up. So I want to present that to you in fairness and say, hey, that's also there. Um, do some research. I'd be glad to talk with you and dig in with you and uh, tell you why I kind of lean towards the more positive interpretation of this one. That one also stands, and I can, with a clear conscience, give it to you. But um, there's a warning there that in we know it to be true biblically, that as this tree grows, that there will be false teachers that enter. Um, Paul says in, uh, in Acts that they will grow up, that they won't come from without, they'll come from within, and they'll show up and try to teach a false gospel, lead people astray, deceive believers, all those kind of things. Um, so there is a warning there, and there's a warning on this next parable too. So don't let me get too far without giving you that one as well. But let's look at He told them another parable. So the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And like I said, the first parable is what we see visibly. We see this tree growing. It's a visible expansion of the kingdom. The leaven is something. Has anybody ever done kind of the sourdough thing where you have to like babysit this bread for too many days and, you know, watch it and add things to it and mix it? No one's going to raise their hand now after I made fun of it and stuff. But um, I've never done it. I've watched it online. I've watched it on YouTube and stuff. It's kind of, you know, frustrating because you can't see what's happening, right? It's all, it's all invisible. It's happening. This, this leaven, this yeast is, is moving into this bread and it's <clears throat> this active ingredient that's it's producing something. Uh, we actually get our um, this word levitate from this word leaven uh, because what does bread do, right? It doesn't levitate, but it, it rises, right? That would be weird if it started levitating when you put yeast in it. But what does it do? It rises, and what does Jesus say? He says, the kingdom of God, him, his rule and his reign on the earth is like uh, this woman taking leaven and putting it into the flour until the whole thing is leavened, which is so true. Uh, what they would do in first century Israel is they would take some of the old bread and they would put it in 
new flour, the new dough. And then as the leaven would do, it would just permeate all throughout the flour and the dough until it would rise, until it would bake, until it would grow. And it's this picture of the invisible kingdom. That this, this, the gospel gets spread, that it permeates all throughout the world. And we see this all over the place. We see the gospel just permeate all throughout, uh, cross boundaries, cross you know, cultural different parameters and barriers that we put up, and that the gospel permeates um, different walls that we put up, that it crosses gender, it crosses socioeconomic status, that it doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, black, white, sinner, whatever you've done, regardless of your past, that you can try to stop it, but as the gospel gets preached throughout the world, it does. In fact, the, one of the, you know, the only ways to try to stop it is to legislate against it. And what's so fascinating about that is every country that legislates against the gospel being spread, it just permeates even faster. It just does. Statistically, is growing faster in the places where it's illegal, like Iran and others. That even if you try to legislate against it, it just permeates all the way through. It just does. It's like water damage. Anybody ever dealt with flood in your room or your... I, uh, a couple months ago, uh, got in my little Ford Fusion and uh, the carpet uh, all throughout the, the two front seats was just soaking wet. And I'm going, what in the world is wrong? Like, is there something, is there a hole under it where like rainwater's stuff? So, you know, I try to suck it up for a couple weeks and park in the sun and roll the windows down. But, you know, with wet carpet and the windows closed, your windows get all nasty and it smells terrible. And Will Franco's like, hey, drive me to lunch. And I'm like, uh, nah, man, like uh, you can drive. And I'm just like trying to figure it out. And finally, um, we find out that leaves and stuff have gotten, uh, you know, down past the windshield where your wipers are, just all that space down there. Um, there are leaves down there that essentially eroded uh, the my windshield and the inside of my car. And uh, just water just started seeping through um, all the way in. And uh, it was nasty and had to get it cleaned out and all the kind of things. Um, but that's a very negative sense. But in, in the positive, that's how the gospel just spreads. You, you can try to kill Jesus. And they did. And Unbeknownst to them, they were accomplishing the very redemptive purpose of God, making the message spread, accomplishing redemption for all who might put their faith in Jesus. Tried that. Stephen, let's kill him, right? What happens? They kill Stephen, a believer, and the church in Jerusalem just flees all throughout Asia Minor. And what happens when they flee? They just start popping up little churches all throughout Asia Minor, and all the babies just run out everywhere, right? That's what happens. I just gave you a really bad mental image. But that's, that's what happens with the church. You try to stop it from permeating through and it just keeps going. It's like the positive form of water damage. Nothing will stop the gospel from permeating to the ends of the earth. Why? Not because of anything we do, but because Jesus Christ promised that that's how it would happen. That the gospel will go to the ends of the earth and then the end will come. That all ethnos, all nations, all people, will eventually hear the gospel before the end has come. He will accomplish it. He began the work and he will complete the work. And you can try to stop it, but it permeates all the way through. We see the visible kingdom growing and we see kind of permeation of the gospel spreading throughout the world. <clears throat> At the same token though, that same permeation that's happening all throughout the world is supposed to happen here. That as we hear the gospel, Every week, 
a believer in here, that the gospel will permeate into those parts of our hearts um, that are cold, that are hard, those parts of my lives where I say, hey God, you can have this part of my life, but I'm gonna hold on to this in this season of my life. I'm gonna you know, mess around with this. I'm gonna entertain this. You can have my money, you can have my marriage, you can have those things, but I'm gonna entertain this. All those parts of my heart that have grown cold, that have grown hard, that as the gospel gets preached, that every single time the word gets preached, that it, it, it seeps into those parts of our lives and begins to soften them. And the point being so that you and I, will, we will just let them come out, that we'll confess and repent and allow the Lord, allow the sunlight to, to come in on those things. Nothing good grows in the dark and junk, right? There's nothing good that grows in the secrets of your heart, Nothing. But as the gospel gets preached, it's meant to permeate into these different parts of our lives that we hold on to, that we trust in our own efforts and our own works every day. And that's why the word is so rich and so good and so faithful that every time I draw, every time I go to it, it exposes me and shows where I've wandered, shows where I've gone cold, shows where my heart has grown hard. And it permeates deep spots of my heart that I think I'm hiding from the Lord but he can see it all. And the same gospel that's permeating all throughout the nations is meant to, to permeate in your heart, like leaven, that it's meant to just seep in and cause us to rise, to grow into maturity, to grow into the image of Christ. We see this all throughout the New Testament, that Peter talks about that we've been born again <clears throat> according to God's mercy. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection dead, all of those things. He says the Old Testament prophets prophesied about this grace that was coming. And then he ends chapter one with this good news was the gospel that was preached to you. And in chapter two, he says, now long for that word, long for that same word that saved you, long for it like that the same gospel that is totally sufficient to save you, that I don't need to add anything to it, that based on God's word, you and I can see that we are sinners. We fall short of God's, God's glory. We are fully deserving of his wrath. And Jesus Christ, to, to live the life we can't live and take on the wrath of God in our place, the same word that is sufficient to save you is the same word that is totally sufficient to sanctify you, to permeate in your life and to produce fruit, to grow you into maturity. Long for it and, and we consume it so that it will grow us up. It will cause us to rise, not in our arrogance, but in our affections for the Lord, that we will rise in our obedience, we will rise in our affections, and we long for it. Second Timothy is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And verse 17 says, so that the man or woman of God may be complete and fully equipped for every good work. That we have all that we need in this word for life and for godliness to us. And we long for it and we allow it to permeate in our hearts week after week after week. Second Corinthians four, what does it say? Outwardly, you and I, we are wasting away. We are. It is science. It is how God the world, that you and I are all wasting away. We just are. But inwardly, those that are in Christ, what's happening? We are becoming more and more new every day. We're being renewed by the word. We are getting closer and closer to life than we've never experienced before. We can never imagine that as our earthly bodies and these shells are decaying, our souls and our spirit, if you're in Christ, they're getting closer and closer to life unimaginable. Outwardly, we're wasting away. Inwardly, the gospel work is permeating in our hearts and it's, we're 
day. That this gospel would be like leaven in our hearts. It would permeate into those dark parts, those cold parts. 2 Corinthians 3. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. How do we behold the glory? We behold him in his word. This is how he's chosen to reveal himself. This is how we know who our God is. We only know him by how he has chosen to reveal himself in his word. So we behold him in his word. We worship him. So we better be singing songs that are based on his word because this is how he's chosen to reveal himself. And as we behold him in his word and sing about it and study it and dive into it and consume it, what does he do? He transforms us from one degree that his word permeates in our hearts. And he conforms us to the image of his son, as Romans 8, 29 says. Over and over and over again, we see this. Philippians 2, what do we do? We work out what God is working in. For it is us to will and to work for his good pleasure. That the, the, the daily method of the believer is not to work for salvation. That's not it. What do we do? We work out the salvation that he's continually working in. That the more that we study God's word, the more we treasure it, sinners, the more that we depend on his grace and depend on what he's done for us, we work out what he's permeating in. Does that make sense? We don't work for it, but we work out what he's continually working in. And this is why we berate you to read your Bible, not to keep up a religious game, not so that God will be mad at you or smite you. That's religion. That's you performing for God's blessing, which is not biblical. Why do we keep pleading for us as a body of believers that we would be people every day so that we can work out what he continues to work in us as we behold him in his word. Does that make sense? The thing my wife, my friends, my family need most from me is to be in this word. And God is continually working and permeating in my heart. We see it over and over again. Romans 12, verse two. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What are we renewing our mind in? It's not, it's not other than, I'm not you know, saying those are bad things, but it's, we're renewing our mind in the word. That's what we're doing. We're renewing our mind with this word because my default setting is to wake up and is to go wander and pursue my own name, my own pleasure, my own glory, my own security, and I make a terrible king. And every day I need to get in this word and remind myself that I have a good father and a good shepherd and I'm a terrible king and he wants to lead me and he leads me by his word and by his spirit. And this throughout the world is meant to permeate in our own hearts. So the question this morning is, has the gospel permeated in your heart? Is it permeating in your heart? Some of you, maybe you've never allowed the gospel message to, to take root. You've never put your faith in Jesus. I would gladly give up the rest of my afternoon, and I don't say that arrogantly or like I'm the answer or anything. I would gladly spend the rest of my afternoon to talk to you about the gospel if you feel like the Lord's calling you to put your faith in Jesus. I know our elders will. We will gladly have that conversation with you. But <clears throat> let's finish these last two verses, and then I'll give a couple closing statements. But it says this in verse 34. Um, it says, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them. With now, <clears throat> what Jesus is saying here, what Matthew is saying here, is not that every time Jesus spoke from this point on, every word was a parable. Uh, but what he's saying here, Jesus still interacted with people. He still taught. Um, he still conversed with people and performed miracles and those things. 
he publicly taught, he did not teach without using a parable. That from this point on, to conceal the truth from some and reveal the truth to others, to condemn Israel, he would teach in these parables. And each time he taught publicly, he would at least use a parable to them without using a parable. And we see this, we looked at the Olivet Discourse a couple weeks ago. We looked at Matthew chapter 24, um, the discourse is 24 and 25, and all that means, Olivet just means on the Mount of Olives, and discourse means teaching. Um, but in that teaching, Jesus used parables in those two chapters, that as he would teach, he would teach in parables. And here's why Matthew says he does it in verse 35. It says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, this drove commentators crazy as I was reading this week. Um, some of them even argued that Matthew was um, pulling this quote from Isaiah um, out of context. And uh, that's not what Matthew's doing here. Uh, when Matthew says that Jesus would come and he would teach, reveal things that are hidden, he doesn't mean that he would, um, he would teach these truths that the Old Testament folks didn't have access to. Essentially, where Jesus would bring the new things and if you lived before Jesus, you were just out of luck. That's not what he means. When he means things that are hidden, he means that Jesus Christ would come and he would take the truth that has always been there in the Old Testament and he would reveal it and he would show it um, and, and interpret it and show the world how it ultimately is, is prophesying and leading towards himself. That's what he would do. So he would take what was already there and he would reveal it in a way that showed that it was ultimately pointing to him. Like he would take the Old Testament scriptures that talk about in Isaiah and Jeremiah, how the, the, the Messiah would be a suffering servant, which would cause um, Israel in the first century to go, what in the world is he talking about? And how do we see the fulfillment of that? We see it in Jesus Christ, that he's the suffering servant and the conquering king. We would, he would take the truth that um, says, I will have mercy on who I have mercy and compassion on who on on who I have compassion, and I will call the people that aren't my people, my people. And he would interpret that to be, hey, this is good news for, of great joy for all people, that this is not just for the Jew, that this is He would take the truth that was already there, and he would reveal it to where Paul says in Ephesians that the mystery has been revealed. It's been revealed in Jesus. We have all the mysteries revealed in Christ. It's, it's the church. It's Jesus Christ coming. He, all are welcome. Jew, Greek, slave, free, rich, poor, black, white, anybody is welcome to come and find mercy and grace from Jesus Christ and be adopted into the family. All are welcome. But that's what Matthew means. As we close, the gospel's still expanding today. We can see it visibly. Kingdoms fall, earthly kingdoms fall, earthly kings fall, earthly leaders fall. But we have a savior who will never fall and we will continue to see the gospel and the gospel also continues to permeate today. That Jesus Christ, he rules and he reigns in our hearts. And just like a king, he rules by a scepter. He does. But his scepter is this word. That our king rules by his scepter. He has put his spirit in us to interpret this word and to illumine the truth to us. But this is how he rules us. That our king has a scepter. Our king has a law. And what was the Old Testament law has been fulfilled. And now we still obey it because it, it's still good and right. It's God's holiness revealed to us. But our king's law now is a law of love. It's not a law of us trying to be good enough for him. It's a law of him loving us enough to do it for us, to be our substitute. So our king has a
He has a law, the scepter is his word, the law is his love, and our, king, our kingdom is by birthright, just like in the Old Testament. If you wanted to be a part of the kingdom in Babylon, you had to be Babylonian. If you want to be a part of this kingdom, you have to be born into it. But the good is you can be born again and you can't produce that. It's a free gift of God's grace as well. But you and I can be born into this kingdom by the Holy Spirit, by putting your faith and trust in what Jesus has done in your place. You can be born into this kingdom. You can be sons and daughters of the Father, co-heirs with the King. And as scripture presents in Thessalonians, our King will come. It's called the parousia. He will come back. And just like in the old days, when the king would come in, he would, the king would come back from victory of town, and all the people would go out and celebrate the king and ride in with the king. Paul mentions in Thessalonians that that's exactly how it's going to happen when our king returns. He will return with a scepter. He will return with his law. He will return with his children. And um, mentions that the dead in Christ will rise. Those who are alive will be caught up in the air. We will all go up with our king, and we will ride in behind our king into victory one day. He will rule us forever and ever, and it will be a physical kingdom, ruled by his scepter, by his word, by his law, and we will all be children of the king if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. So the question this morning, for the believer, the unbeliever, the unbeliever, have you ever received the gospel? Has it permeated into your heart? For the believer, grow cold. Where have you allowed... Um, where have you kept some of your own life as far as, hey, God, you can have this, you can have that, but I'm going to delve into this for a season. I'm going to entertain this, and I'll be fine. I'm going to entertain the sin. I'm going to do this part of my life my way. Not allow the gospel to permeate into different parts of your heart and your life. Maybe it's starting devotionals with your kids. You've been putting that off for a while, and you just really, I, I need to jump in and, and start discipling my own children. I don't know what it is. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm just Will you allow the gospel to permeate into your heart again this morning? You don't have to work for his love. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to be good enough for it. You just have to receive it. And when I remember just how much my God has done for me, that he ran after me, that he served me, that he served me I'll run after him. I'll serve him. And I'll lay down my life for him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you that your word is permeating all throughout the God, that man will try to stop it, culture will try to stop it, the world will try to stop it over and over again, but you've made us a promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church, against your gospel being spread, that heaven will literally be made up. We see representatives from every single tribe and tongue and nation on the earth standing in your presence, lifting their hands and saying, holy is the Lord. God, thank you for the opportunity that you use us to be a part of that. God, we should never expect our children, this community, our schools, we should never expect the gospel to permeate there until it first permeates in us. God, even if we're hard-hearted, your promise will prevail. We'll just miss out on the opportunity to be used by you. So God, soften our hearts. Thank you that the gospel message continues to go out. And God, I pray that it would go out through us. Received it, those who have tasted it, those who know that you're good. God, allow us to continue to be transformed by this message. Thank you for your word. Thank you for all that it does in our hearts. Continue to expose us, continue to discipline us, continue to draw us back by your word.
It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.